Okay, well, welcome everyone to this uh, latest uh, podcast from Guardians of the Flame. We are sitting in Ballynafy Methodist with my good friends Dave, David and Jill Hines. I've always called David Dave, <laughs> so I'm just going to call him Dave for this interview. Um, uh, before we go into the interview, um, there, this is the kind of most recent, I suppose, in a, a little small series of podcasts that we're doing. Um, which includes some live events. Um, you may have seen uh, the uh, event we did for the International Day of Peace. And we also filmed uh, last night an event that we run, uh, Dave and Jill and Jen and I, and a, a little committee of uh, people, we run an event called Borderlands here in Belfast. Uh, so um, that's, that's what we do. And that's the kind of this little season of podcast that we're in. I suppose over the last couple of years with Guardians of the Flame, we have interviewed musicians, politicians, artists, theologians, pastors, um, I don't know who, random people, lots of people, and different stories. Uh, Guardians of the Flame kind of emerged out of the idea of can we look for stories of people who are um, living in a way that brings life to the world, um, uh, the the word in the Bible would probably be shalom, um, which is it's not just peace, but a sense of wholeness and health. Um, and so we've been looking for stories of people who live in a way that is bringing life to the world and bringing goodness to the world. And particularly often, not always, but often it's people whose lives are rooted around faith and around their kind of, kind of sense of desire to follow God in a sense. Um, and so... But in doing so, we've hoped that those podcasts are done in a way that um, can be listened to by people of faith or people that don't have faith. And, um, and this interview is no different than that. So Dave and Jill Hines are two of my oldest and dearest friends, um, uh, probably top 57, I'd say, kind of <laughs> friends, you know. Um, uh, no, that no, honor. You know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, they, they are dear friends that I've known. Um, I've known Dave since 96 and Jill since 98. Uh, and Jen and I would view them as real dear, deep, close friends. Um, so it's a, actually been really, it's nice to sit down and have an interview because there's probably very few people in the world that I would... Uh, value more or trust more in terms of your life and your example and the way you've lived. Um, and Dave and Jill are the type of people, for those of you listening, who you won't find them on Twitter, sadly, and you'll <laughs> find photos of rivers on Instagram with them and, you know, pictures of dogs and stuff. They're, they're not really into telling their story publicly uh, using social media, I don't think, in a way. that they're, they're not very, they're very humble people. I mean that in a compliment, complimentary way. Mm. Um, they, they don't kind of tell their story for the whole world to see. They live their life, and if you want to see it, you'll, you'll see it. So that's a bit of a long-winded in introduction, but Dave and Jill, thanks for letting us that's come into sweet, the, into the Thank church you. that you're working in. Mm. So this Ballion of Fire Methodist is, is a church you're working in. Can you just tell us a little bit about this building um, and what some of the plans are? So John Alderdice is the minister for the circuit um, you guys have come along as kind of essentially community builders um, yeah. tell us a little bit about the building and kind of your involvement in it so we're, we're called pioneer mission leaders uh, with the Methodist Church um, and we've been working here since just before COVID so 2019 this is an old uh, Methodist preaching house on the Ulmo Road in South Belfast um, uh, big balcony behind us and these pews big behind the camera there's a big pulpit um, and uh, yes yeah, it's, it's it's very it's a hundred two hundred year old building nearly um, built back in the day where Methodism was strong and assertive uh, there was a schoolhouse out the back in the tradition of Methodism after they started a national school they saw a need they started a national school and uh, then they uh, built a church around here. They also started the Rosario Football Club along with the Catholics um, next door, um, uh, which is now a big club on the road with maybe 700, 1,000 families involved. Um, big, big thing there. So yeah, back in the day, Methodism in, in, in Ireland was, was, was big. Wesley, Wesley, 
you know, travelled around here. Um, and yeah, 100 years ago, this church would have been packed. Mm. But uh, obviously these days, not so much. You know, it's, it's very much a, um, a monument to a time where the preacher stood six foot above contradiction and uh, everyone showed up on time on a Sunday morning and heard, heard a sermon and, and, uh, and would have, you know, been excited to do that. There's these days, those days are gone, and I suppose our job is to try and reimagine what the church could be in such a time and place mm. with the police siren going outside <laughs> and, and, you know, literally mm. on a prime location on one of the main arterial routes in into Belfast, sa- out, yeah. out to South Belfast. And what does the church in the city look like these days? What could it look like? What should it look like in mm-hmm. 2023? Mm. Um, not what did it look like 50, 60 years ago? Mm. And in that sense, you know, can we plug into the creativity of the spirit and sort of reimagine what the church in the community looks like, what the gospel looks like mm. um, in this day and age? Yeah. I think from the beginning, we've <clears throat> really wanted to... Um, this idea of turning it inside out so so instead of the church building being here for the congregation um what does it look like if we made it as for the com- for the community and so um we started to just imagine what that would look like with a m- huge building uh really centrally located so we're looking at uh different ideas of um turning this place into an arts venue so that it's not just used on a sunday morning but also five six seven days a week um, that has uh, like ethnic um, food hubs outside that can be com- brought in and will have big tables and um, prayer and hospitality are two big key words for us. So it's all about how do we eat together and um, as a community, uh, what, do we, what does that look like? And so then that looks like further back, I think we're looking at doing more of a live-in community, almost a new monastic idea of rhythms of life living together. And then again, um, starting up different things like community meals and choirs and things that we're using mm. the building throughout the week. And then we're going to do some crisis housing on the back as well, because mm. there's a real shortage of um, social housing here in South Belfast. We have a small sort of plot of land. It's a bit of a builder's yard at the back of the church. So we're going to take that, build some um, single unit sort of housing on the back there, and then almost have a little community of mm. uh, vulnerable women and uh it's really about seeing the church washing the feet of the community. Uh, the church doesn't belong to us. But was it Spurgeon? Someone once said the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And uh, that's manifestly not the case in so many of the churches that we would know and would have grown up around. However, it is the ideal that we, when we pr- push into, would aspire to. And I think it's a very Wesleyan ideal as well. So how do we turn the church inside out? How do we give it away to the community? And in so doing, how do we uh, allow uh, the light of Christ to shine? So I think hospitality and prayer have become two watchwords for our time here the last two or three years. You know, maintaining a spirit-filled life, as you were, or a life that is grounded in faith. Mm. Um, and then opening up to radical hospitality. So you're, you're encountering people then. And last night in Borderlands, we were talking about when heart meets heart. You, then, then holy ground is established and there, there is a sense of the sacred coming in no matter where you're from all faiths are none you know when there is an honest hospitality given and received people can tell if, if you're loving they can tell if you're you know where you're coming from normally we can we're we're highly tuned you know especially if we've been scarred or hurt in the past we, we're very highly tuned to where to people's motives and people's um, attitudes so so i think if we can offer a genuine embrace to the community um, in in different ways, then the winsomeness of Christ is is uh, you know is is welcomed, and the beauty of Christ is allowed to take center stage instead of dogma or sort of wrestling theological arguments. Mm. I think Brian Zand, friend of yours, Johnny, said once he doesn't think anyone's ever been argued into the kingdom of God. Mm by winning an argument you know no one's by losing an argument no one's ever been persuaded into the kingdom of god but but the beauty of christ he says i'll bet the, the faith of my grandchildren on the beauty of christ being something that that persuades people that draws people if i'll be lifted up from the world i'll draw all men unto me so i think so that's what we're looking for to uh to encourage the church the bride of christ to uh be, be beautiful 
and to and to share that beauty with the world. And I think this is a time when people are longing actually for the church to do what it says on the tin, you know. And uh, so, so that's our heart, mm. you know, is to to sort of encourage that. So yesterday I, I quoted this in, in Borderlands last night. I was at a conference in Liverpool and. Um, sitting with a, a brilliant guy who used to be leader of the Corrymeela community, uh, Indigit Bogal, and um, he is great with one-liners. Um, mm. But yesterday he said, um, we need to turn uh, hostility into hospitality, mm -hmm. um, or we need to combat hostility with hospitality, mm. uh, which I thought was that idea of kind of fighting something with something beautiful. Mm. Um, and obviously in Northern Ireland, hostility has been part of our story here. Um, and e even in this road, so you've got Protestant Catholic is the traditional kind of binary um, story that's often told about this country. The Ormo Road, which is this main arterial route out here, is we're in the, what would have traditionally been the orange or the unionist part of the Ormo Road, and across the bridge is the more Republican end. Now, now this would be one of the most mixed parts of Belfast from what I've heard. Um, and I, I love the idea of, you know, th throughout the Western world, we've got demographic anxiety. In Northern Ireland, we have demographic anxiety of, of Protestants mm -hmm. feeling like they are being outnumbered. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, immigration. We have, have people that don't fit into those binaries. Um, and so the potential is for hostility. And I think what is very beautiful, one of the things that you've done is before you get a building transformed and build X, Y, and Z, you've started a community meal. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Jill, and why you did that, and, and what does it look like? Yeah, uh, it's one of my favorite parts of my week, actually. On a Thursday night, we'll come into the hall just behind us and <clears throat> set up a bunch of tables, and uh, we use the caterers down the road, the L'Arche community. Um, we get to support them, and they make about... 80, 70 to 80 portions of food, and we bring that in, and we're able to just serve that to um, just anyone who's who happens to who be around, who walks a... in off the street. So we've mm. got a really lovely, diverse um, community, a family that sits around big, long trestle tables, mm. and there's always laughter. Mm. There's always clanking of forks and spoons and uh, kids, kids running around, and mm. it, there's a real sense of... Uh, family eating together and I think that was one of our hearts as well this idea that actually the table is is so central to all of society and mm. and it's something that actually we've been we're in the west especially we're we're missing and losing a lot of that sense of, mm. of sort of sen the centrality of the table and so mm. if we can do that as a community if we can open mm. that up and allow mm. there's a lovely quote um, I think I think it's by uh, Richard Twist, who's a First Nations theologian, or was, um, and I think he said the Trinity is a, a remarkable, um, a radical diversity expressed in remarkable community, mm -hmm. and I think that okay. is often like what the community meal is. It's mm. this real radical diversity. We have people from all different communities and walks of, uh, walks life, of life, ages and stages, and and then you bring them together and actually you see this really remarkable um, community forming that is a real expression of Trinity of the Trinity and mm. I really love that I love that we serve if we are the people of the Trinity mm. then then surely that's how our life should be looking mm. throughout and in those small ways as well yeah that's lovely Jill um I think if I was to you know if you were to describe a a uh, uh, what do you call it, an emoji to your to to you guys? It, or a, <laughs> it would probably be a table, um, uh, um, I think. Or a, you know, if there's some kind of metaphor to describe the way you've lived mm. your life, um, it is a big table, mm. um, and you you know you get this. What what's that um, meme about? Like, don't you know, build bigger tables, basically. You We've know? got this picture yeah. in our in our living room. I think is it by Scott the painter? Yeah, Scott. No, yeah, uh, yeah. Is it anyway? Yeah. It's 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 a picture of a hand, and it's got all these little sparrows around the hand, and they're 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 eating breadcrumbs off the hand, mm -hmm. and the title is that you know more room at the table or something mm -hmm. room at the table. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's always been quite meaningful to us. Yeah. I think. yeah. And and so I think you've often done that. So a community meal open to the general public, and it, it's a beautiful. I go there every Thursday because <laughs> you know who doesn't want a free dinner. And the kids love work, it, don't they? Yeah. Um, 
but uh, but as well as that, in the early days when you first got married, back in the '90s, late '90s, you started. You had this idea, this dream, um, of a coffee shop, which became a coffee shop called Common Grounds. Mm. And and I was thinking again, if there was a if it was metaphor, if there was a phrase that kind of summed up the way you've lived your life, it is Common Grounds, like creating space, a big table for people to all be on the same level. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit um, about common grounds and what it's it doesn't exist as common grounds anymore um but it did for a long time and uh, you know it won awards for best cafe in belfast mm-hmm. and it was in the easy jet magazine or <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know they've the, all the big politicians would come and get their photo taken in common grounds <laughs> and, um tell us a little bit about Foy Vance uh, played that yeah the day. <laughs> he did yeah Tell us a bit about some of the story of it, and um, yeah, there's many stories, but just you know the big picture of what it was, and even some of those little bits about the pottery you used or the the, ta- the tables that you had built. Mm. Yeah, so uh, actually, when we before we were even married, uh, we I remember David telling me about this dream he had um, to start a cafe in the Holy Lands, which is the area of. Belfast, where a majority of student population is from. It's a really transient community, and so there's not really a hub at all in that area. There's not a place, um, a centre of the community. We should say why it's called the Holy Lands. It's called called the Holy Lands because it's got streets called Jerusalem Street, Palestine Street. Damascus Street. Damascus Damascus Street. Street. I think the original owner of that land, you know, had been to Israel or was, you know, you know, yes, so very, it's named, a very different the roads after, holy after lands. <laughs> yeah, being part in the Middle East or Palestine or whatever. So yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting. So anyway, it's just so behind the university, behind Queen's University. In that was a good little, yeah. it was an important clarification that was important. there. <laughs> the world, Sorry, the world needed to hear that. So there was a church there that we were working for, and uh, we came on as sort of university student workers in our young idealistic days and um we really wanted to it was it was belfast is uh, a very uh precious place but it usually is about 20 years behind the rest of the world <laughs> when it comes to trends or different things in different ways and so uh the coffee culture hadn't really hit belfast mm. at all there was one coffee shop i think um no the, i think clements was was kind of starting to arrive but there was really the the coffee culture hadn't really come here. So we had this idea of what if we made a sort of a hub in the center of the Holy Lands where there's just no no sense of community. It's a very transient place. And we really wanted it to be someplace that caused people to question. So we didn't want it to be a little churchy cafe where people knew right away, oh, this is church run and there's a track on your table. Or, you know, we wanted it to be this kind of, yeah, this kind of idea of, this is kind of confusing me because this is a really good cafe that I feel really welcome in no matter who I am, but I think it might be run by the church mm-hmm. and I think they built it, but I don't really know. And I'm I want to, sure. and I want to question that. I want to mm-hmm. talk about that. And so we wanted it very much to be that common ground, that place mm-hmm. where people were able to come and sort of say, you know, what is this place? And mm-hmm. what is it? We, we, in every detail, we wanted it to be kingdom. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. there was, so we were, one of you know fair trade when what do you mean kingdom what does that mean well the kingdom of god is it's about as you mentioned shalom earlier 360 degree peace what does that actually look like what is it you know it looks like uh the biblical version of it would be a grandfather sitting under a a grapevine that he had planted watching his grandchildren play Mm. safely and free from fear with enough food with enough with good relationships with his neighbors with hope for tomorrow you know, strength for today. You know, there's there's a sense of justice, a sense of peace, a sense of enoughness, enough to share, you know, enough for everyone, more room at the table, you know, mm. instead of this rather pinched, anxious mm. kind mm. of um, context that we would have mm. without trust, you know, and overarching that trust in a merciful God who is all-sufficient and who has, who holds the end in his hands. So there's that sense of of contentedness, but then at the beginning, so for instance, we were fair trade before it was trendy to be fair trade, uh, because there's economic justice involved in that. We got our pottery from a, a potter who who was teaching uh, young adults with learning difficulties to how to do pottery, and so we intentionally decided to choose our pots from them. I remember a guy called Sean who used to make all our mugs. 
he couldn't make plates, but he made brilliant mugs, you know, mm. and um, and uh, so so there, there was that aspect. We were a profit, non-profit as well, in the sense that so once every every term we would go to the community and say basically where do you want the profits to go for this? Mm. So mm. they would come and pitch different charities, mm. and then we would together vote. And our first charity mm. that we um, had for the first term, I think we were able to give about 30 grand away to Maloktepeng in, yeah. in mm. Thailand for shoes. Mm. For And that mm. the idea then as well was in a as a student culture, as a kind of in university, you're you're very much insular mm. in your own little world. How do we break that open for them? Mm. How do we mm. how do we show them mm. a wider world? And so that was part yeah. of that as well. And mm. an idea of like, you know, we you sell a cup of coffee. Well, back then it was probably 180 for a cappuccino. But, you know, mm. but, but the cost price for that coffee for the consumer, you mm. know, for the grower, you know, is 3p or something, mm. you know, it's, it's that and those disparities. And this was the time of Jubilee 2000. You know, mm. this whole idea, it was terrible business model probably but you know let's give away our profits it was mm. very jubilee type mm. radical hospitality mm. you know being aware that we live in a global context mm. a very coffee shop we'd have music we'd have art happening in there we we used to have um lots of asylum asylum seekers would come and volunteer in our cafe they weren't allowed to work uh mm. back then but they were just starting to come into northern ireland post mm. after the peace the good friday agreement and so they would come and volunteer, and then often the staff, they had a tip jar, and the staff would share their tips. The, sta mm. the staff would not take any tips. They'd give all their mm. tips mm. to the, the mm. volunteers um, mm. who maybe didn't, couldn't mm. legally have an income. So it was all sorts of ways in which the goodness of God was demonstrated and shared. And I think this is one thing about demonstrating the goodness of God. Jesus always talked in parables. He would say the kingdom of God is a bit like, you know, yeast or a mustard seed or, or, or this or that and I think the church so often has just talked doctrine and theology it's very heady you know and, and people haven't been able to get their head around that you know I think the job of the church also is to model it and is to show it mm. so you know in one sense you're trying to sort of tell a parable mm. look the kingdom of God is a bit like common ground mm. the kingdom of God is a bit like a great feast, mm. like call it the community meal, mm. where all are welcome and there's always room at the table and there's children laughing. Mm. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And that mm. is a vision that not just Christians can get behind. You know, you'll mm. find that Muslims have a very similar mm. vision, probably. Atheists, you know, skeptics, mm. communists, mm. you know, all probably have a fairly <laughs> similar vision in a broad brush what the kingdom of, what utopia, if you like, mm. looks like. Mm. You know, and I think... So that aspect of Christians who don't want to say that till heaven, but actually want to work, you know, following the teachings of Jesus in, in bringing that, you know, into reality now as the hands and feet of Christ, you know, healing, walking, embracing, loving, you know, how do we do that in practical day, ways today on the Ormo Road or wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves? I, uh, what I think was meaningful um, as I watch the journey of seeing common grounds get built and it was city church that that, that built um it took a collection and helped mm -hmm. to raise money for it and it was the original kind of house for the well you know it was the context where out of which common grounds came there wasn't ever really a sense that look how great the christians are it wasn't we it wasn't a narrative that centered the the, the saviors in the middle who were making mm -hmm. it all happen mm -hmm. um it was about kind of almost centering the staff working there, the volunteers, the the people who made the pottery, they were kind of the center of the story rather than look how great we are. Now would you come and believe what we believe in this little mm -hmm. kind of programmatic track that we have, you know? So I think there was, it was very progressive in a sense that um, you were building something that was um, valuing people first and probably valuing those on the margins mm -hmm. first. Um, and, and you guys kind of disappeared into the, it's like that Homer Simpson meme where he disappears into the hedge, you know. Um, it, it wasn't really about you, you know. Um, you wouldn't hear people kind of go, oh, that, you, you know, it, it wasn't about City Church. It wasn't about Dave and Jill. It was, it was this cafe that was owned by the people, you know. It was uh, brilliant. Uh, Dave, you talk a lot as you're talking. You can't help doing, you know, I told him before we did this interview, I told Dave he's not allowed to say praise the Lord. You know, he, he, he does like to, you know, he, he's, you um, do like to say the word praise the Lord. You, you every now and then will burst into an old 80s Keith Green song and you're forbidden from doing that in this interview too. Um, but uh, 
But you, you, you have that, you talk a lot about God, praise the Lord, God, God, you know. Um, but I, I love how part of your journey is after Common Grounds, you ended up going to India for eight or nine years. Yeah. And, and probably in a sense, you were going there to be mission workers, to bring the light of Christ. Mm -hmm. um, but I, in your story, we won't have time in this interview to kind of unpack all the different dimensions or layers of your experience there. But part of what I've I observed in that time is that, yes, you did go with a desire to give something, um, but you also found a lot there. Mm -hmm. And uh, you initially were in a, a completely Muslim area yeah. called Calicut. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you, Dave, talk about friendships with Muslims there and how that kind of changed your faith a little bit or mm -hmm. it changed mm -hmm. your understanding of what your vocation was or what you mm -hmm. were even there in India to do. Can you talk about that maybe? And Jill, I don't know if you've got something to add into. Well, I think first we went over essentially as missionaries into what what they called an, an unreached uh, Muslim people group uh, or unengaged in the sense that there weren't Christian missionaries working with them or trying to share Christ with them. And for me, that unengaged thing always seemed what nobody's even engaging, you know. Now you go over there and realize that there's a, you know, a, an apostolic church in India that goes back 2,000 years and there's Catholics there and some Pentecostals and there's there's Christians everywhere, but of course there weren't any Western mission groups mm. over there. Therefore, they were deemed, you know, unengaged. Mm. Mm. Um, but we went over the organisation we went over with um, had this tagline with love and respect, inviting, I think Muslims to 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 follow Jesus or encounter Jesus. It was something like that, and I think the love and respect and the invitation and then the follow Jesus thing we could all really resonate with. And, and so for us, it was going to a very cross-cultural context in which you could count on one hand the, the number of Westerners or Europeans in the city we were in, trying to then um, work out this, un this knot, wrestle with this knot, how do we then uh, incarnate Jesus? How do we then translate Jesus into this culture? So here it's the Ormo Road, there it was South India. and. And I think we went out with idealism, with a degree of, <laughs> to be honest, you need a bit of idealism to take four kids over to India. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, but, but, th but there was this sense of like, well, the spirit will lead us as it were, let's go, let's encounter, let's love people. And uh, in reality, we ended up um, uh, starting up a tourism business and then we started a school, actually. We ended up starting a primary school mm. uh, that, had a special uh, interest in kids with learning difficulties because uh, we had uh, a teacher on our team who was a specialist in that. And we uncovered, we realized that actually um, within Muslim culture and Hindu culture, uh, people have children who have mm. learning difficulties or who have you know, various mm. disabilities. And these tend to be hidden, they tend to be shameful and very difficult. Anybody you know who's got a child with special needs it's stressful, it's hard. And in that culture, it's, it's almost seen as a curse, mm. in, and a, a curse from God. It's a bit like what, you know, in the Bible times, you know, what did this man do? What did these parents do that this man was born blind? You know, and, mm. and in a place of arranged marriages, it's almost like you want to hide. If there's any deficiency in your family, you want to conceal it rather than advertise it. And so I think there was a sense of we wanted to create a place where children were loved and there was child-centered education happening. And it was a bit countercultural at the time, and often we found that um, people who had lived in the West and maybe seen uh, a more child-friendly education model, um, uh, you know, were very attracted to it. And, the, and it's still running. It's, it's got, got 100 students, about 30 staff, and it's, it's a brilliant thing. I mean, there's peop we just helped start it, but, I mean, people other than us took it on from strength mm. to strength. But mm. But I remember going there with this kind of sense of uh, this is what mission is. It's kind of coming and winning people for Christ. Um, but I think this Thomas Merton quote stuck with me. It said, uh, India, we don't need your missionaries, but do send us your saints. Mm. Um, basically, we don't need people coming to add to the complexity and confusion of this place. We don't need more religious arguments, but we do need models of righteousness. We do need, we appreciate people. God lovers. Mm. India loves God, 
India loves gods. It loves its religion. And it really loves talking about... You know, many of the world's main religions were birthed in India. And, and that, that is a people who love, who reach for the divine. And so in one sense, in India... So Mother Teresa was an interesting example of somebody who, who was an awesome, had an awesome impact and had people in tears at her funeral, communist you know, politicians in tears at her funeral, um, bowed over by her godliness which was apparent. Um, but so I think, I think with India, I had this one friend, Babu, who lived across the street from us, and he was a, a young cardiologist, very intelligent man, who'd, uh, he'd, he'd been a poet and a bit of a, you know, a creative type. And then he discovered he had a very aggressive cancer and um, was approached by some people in the mosque who said, you know, you need to sort your life out because you know where this is going. You know, and within Islam, there's very much a, a scale that is weighed between your good deeds and your bad deeds and, and your eternal destiny is really um, founded really on a sum of how, how that ends up. And so he, so he then became the most righteous person that I've ever met, I think. He, used to, he was taking chemotherapy, but he'd get off his bed and, and go do open heart surgery because his juniors weren't as good as he was mm. and he wanted to make sure it was done right. He would pay for people's operations. He would... Um, he he would reach out to us, and um, he, you know he he was a very devout devout. He became a very very devout conservative Muslim, and we'd often have long chats. And I think he would have loved if I'd have come to if I'd have converted to Islam. He would have loved that. Mm. Um, and similarly, I'd have loved it if he he was I was gonna you know he was gonna become a Christian and then be healed mm. and that was you know and then all his family would become saved and it was it was going to become my book you know it was going to be awesome mm -hmm. and then and then i remember him dying and i was there on his deathbed as he uh, um as he was dying and his family were gathered around him and they were sort of encouraging him to say the words as his holy words mm. you know of, of mm. god if you die with the lord's name on your lips it's an extra point you know, and they were trying to get him across the line, you know. And it was, it was an exquisitely mm. painful moment of religion, the game of religion being worked out in somebody's life. You know, the, you know often with religion, it's, there's, a, there's a system of rules, and you, this is how you win the game. You play it this way. And if you win it, you get, you know, mm. you get divine rewards and, you and if you lose that. it you lose it mm -hmm. and i could see it and I, I was the only one crying in the room because everyone else was trying to have faith for him and you understood it i guess because you've seen the same thing play out in christian well circles. i've seen it in, yeah i've seen it in christian. this is how people religion on their is. deathbed say the prayer say the sinner's yes, prayer i mean i grew up in a fundamentalist background i grew up sort of there's nothing wrong with this marriage in jesus name and all that sort of stuff you know i grew up around all that and i've seen people sort of you know my my leg is not broken in jesus name and all, all that stuff you know and you're kind of like and the, what they're trying to do is they're trying to win. They're try, trying to, it's like a spell. It's try, you're trying to make something mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. And it is not receiving the salvation that's already been won for us. It's not the grace of God. And it, w it, was, it was tragic but beautiful all at the same time because there was real love and real belief and real hope and real everyone really trying to love him. Mm -hmm. um, but him dying, I, I was fundamentally... I, I, th I was bereaved when he died um, because suddenly my friend had gone and suddenly he was taken away just that day, like, you know, and, and it's, it's all done very quickly. And, uh, and I was like, what was that about? That wasn't meant to happen. And it did. And I, and I think from then on, I think I realized that the quality of our witness is probably, and I, I realized probably agency that we were with there was this focus on success what does success look like and I think for us it was about faithfulness mm. and about being faithful to God and not necessarily in um, you didn't want to play a conquest the game. You, you started to there was a religious game that. involved in what we were doing mm. and 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 we were winning approval from God or from churches or from supporters or whatever it was in one sense and I, I think, think was I think as well it was a really interesting time of whenever you're taken out of your comfort zone yourself, you realize actually um, I am just as much in need as my mm. neighbor who mm. I thought I was coming to help, mm. you yeah. know? And I think, you so I think our, our views of even what, you know, 
colonial missionary ideas have really changed and and we would think quite differently about that now but i think um more profoundly we realized the need that for for one another that mm. that actually i need you as much as i thought mm. you needed me mm. and actually probably more so and my kids you know mm. need your kids and mm. and this it was a it was a really um incredibly profound time of recognizing our vulnerability mm. and and actually how beautiful it is mm. when we can offer that to one another and you could again we could tell long stories about your time there you you went up the hill um to to be near a really good school for your mm. kids and ended up uh coming alongside and again not being the kind of white saviors but coming alongside an ngo there that was doing good work can you just tell us a little bit about some of what that charity does and, and, and what you were involved in up there in Uti, yeah. Uti, if Uti you've ever, Kimund. yeah, yeah. Uh, the it's south a, of India. Oh, it's a brilliant place. Uh, it's very, it's about five hours up the hill, um, about 32 switchback curves you have to get through to get to <laughs> it. You guys came and visited yeah, us there. Yeah, we went through. It's like really rainforest special. kind of yeah. almost. Yeah. And you see monkeys. And yeah, elephants. Yeah. And it's a beautiful place. Um, but we moved up there uh four years after moving to India and we were there for another four or five years and uh, we worked with this incredible NGO called Smyrna Fellowship Trust which was run by local people um, and it worked mostly within tribal kids and uh, sort of slum areas getting uh, kids through education so it was it's a bit like it was a bit like compassion they mm. would sponsor people um, majority they tried to really focus on girls because there was still a lot of underage marriage and um, things happening within the tribal communities. So, um, and it was an incredible time of actually watching how education actually can is is probably the best development you can mm -hmm. give uh, mm -hmm. in in deprived communities where actually there's there's you know within a generation we saw kids going through. Uh, first level, second level, and then even third level education. Mm. And within that one generation, their whole family's mm. sort of fate is changed. Their mm. whole family's mm. destiny is changed. It's a salvation of sorts. So it's an incredible NGO and it's run by really um, men and women of real um, deep love and conviction. And uh, Kartik, one of the guys that we first met who, who was the um, guy who ran the NGO for a while, had a had a sign in his office. I remember one of those kind of, it was very, you know, a perfect little Christian forest and <laughs> it looked all lovely. And it, but it said, you can trust an unknown future uh, to a known God. And that's all kind of twee and fine when you get it in the West, but mm. actually it's an entirely different thing mm. when you're sitting in an office of somebody who literally trusts, who hears every day of mm. crises in, in, uh, families' lives yeah, one no that have have go from one incident. So a single mom who lives uh, in a tin shack with her two daughters, teenage daughters, uh, you know, wrecks her hand in the tea factory, and that from that day on, she's no longer able to take care of her kids. Her mm. kids are very vulnerable. They then um, have a higher likelihood of getting put into a, a arranged marriage, which isn't healthy or good for them. Um, and then the cycle just continues. And so you see actually these men and women of faith that have set up this NGO that have such an incredibly deep um, leaning on God, a leaning and an understanding yeah. that we can only depend on you. And, yeah. and so it's, it was hugely humbling for us to come into that place and see actually um, poverty at a really, you know, incredibly... Um, mm sad and uh very obvious you know level but then also the depth of uh mm. life that people live in mm. in uh, those places as well so that was really special we had lots of we developed um our job there was then to develop a, a guest house and mm. to try and generate income for the um charity that mm. um, it becomes more sustainable sustaining for them so mm. so we did we made we we converted an, an old, old colonial bungalow into a fancy Airbnb for Bangalore mm. IT crowd to come and have weekends away because Uti is quite a tourist destination because of the climate mm. and the history there. So, mm. so you, you know, we were. That's what that was our work really. After the after we'd been there for a year or two, helping out mm. generally, we came up with this mm. idea. 
really to help the project become a bit more self-sufficient and sustainable in the long run because it was very dependent on foreign funding and the BJP government there was was getting more mm. um, aggressive towards Christian and Muslim uh, organisations and so you couldn't take for granted that foreign funding would be allowed and and uh, yeah, it was, it, we, we converted a, you know, Airbnb was just coming and it was a great model f for them. And that's, that's earning 20, 30 grand a year now, isn't it, for, mm. for them, which is a, a really big deal. But um, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's, one, it's a real privilege, actually, when you come into these uh, areas around the world, undeveloped, undeveloped areas in the world, that aren't because the, there's a huge brain drain uh, from into the big cities and, of course, overseas. So somewhere like India, if you go into a rural township, there's not many university-educated level people mm. who haven't gone off, you know, mm. who, who, who can work for a small charity for free, you know. Mm. So, so in one sense, you can bring whatever level of education you have, you know, you could, if you're willing to give it away or offer it, then it could be a tremendous asset somewhere. So it was wonderful to be in a position where we had something to offer because we knew how to, you know, use social media or yeah. apart from Twitter, obviously. But, you know, <laughs> but we could, you know, do a website. We could raise funds. Yeah. We could um, make plans, yeah. business proposals, you know, things like that. Yeah. We, could, we could bring that to the table yeah. and really help come alongside as a, as a team member and really help develop yeah. um, good projects. Great. Um, then you came back here, and, and this is where you've got involved in, in Ballina Fire Methodist. And um, one of the things um, I remember when we visited uh, India 2016, Jan and I and the kids came out and had a brilliant uh, three weeks. Um, the kids would, you know, remember that holiday for the rest of their lives, I'm sure. Um, uh, but I remember one of the nights talking about an idea I had had for some kind of Christian community or, or not even a Christian community, a space where all the labels in Northern Ireland could, could, um, could sit with dignity together in a, in a space and, and have an evening of um, encountering each other and encountering God and, uh, and where Protestants, Catholics, atheists whatever could all sit together um and i thought maybe this at the time we were living on the border and it was like this idea of borderlands kind of creating this kind of space and so of course you guys came back and ended up we've ended up together kind of starting this little monthly event um it's part of my work in Karimila now and it's you know it's it's um got a whole bunch of people involved in it but it's called borderlands we meet in the pub and um I remember talking when we first talked about it, Jill. You had um, you immediately kind of uh, referenced something you had heard about ecotones and stuff. Can mm. tell us tell us about that and what how that what that relates to what Borderlands is. And yeah, I, I um, remember ta hearing somebody talk about um, this incredible kind of ecological thing that happens called an ecotone um, and it's where basically two different um, ecological systems collide and come together so oftentimes you'll see it um, as like a forest comes into uh, the sea or um, you'll see as a desert comes into um, a, a more prairie area um, but it's where those two co those two ecological places sort of collide a mm. little bit um, and the really interesting thing about it is that actually there's life and it creates a, a diversity that is found in no other place. And, and it's only when two different systems collide um, that you find that mm. uh, whole new life. So you'll find all sorts of different organisms and all sorts of things that are happening in that area, in that ecotone that, doesn't, that don't happen anywhere mm. else. And I love that idea that actually... It's in. It goes back to that quote, I guess, where it's only in diversity that we find radical community, mm. and it's only in that diversity where we find ourselves, mm. where we find actually who I'm meant to be in comparison mm. with you, or you're mm. blending with me, and and what does that look like? And and I've just been convinced as more as we grow older <laughs> mm. and see more community in different ways happening. I am just so convinced that I can't. Um, be my fullest without 
mm. without those that are different around mm. me. And and I think there's a lovely thing that happens oftentimes, isn't it? And mm. nature uh, reflects oftentimes the the truths that mm. we find in our humanity as well. So mm. um, I just really like that idea of this this place where two places converge, actually creating mm. a life and um, a beauty that you don't find anywhere mm. else. Mm. Um, and and so I think it, just as we've been talking, we're we're touching on, you know, I think why I kind of was really keen to kind of talk to you guys is, on one hand, Guardians of the Flame is is it comes from this idea that Jonathan Sachs says that re religion is like fire; it it warms, but it also burns. Um, and and we have lived in Northern Ireland long enough. You have lived in North America, where you're from long enough, Dave, in England, you know, we've, we've seen fundamentalism, we've seen religion that uh, spits people out, that, mm -hmm. um, that draws dividing barriers, that kicks, kicks people out, that restricts. Um, and, and yet maybe the answer isn't that we all just become gray and we all become merge into kind of mm -hmm. a oneness without divert, but there's something about diversity, mm -hmm. which is about difference. Um, and, and, and so it's not that you guys need to become less Christian, then you probably need to keep saying, praise the Lord, Dave, you know, <laughs> but, and, but aware that they, you will happily sit with others who are quite different, mm -hmm. quite profoundly different, and you don't need to turn them into a praise the Lord Christian like you, you know. Mm -hmm. um, is there some th reflections you've got on Borderlands, Dave, and kind of what you feel like the capacity of it is or what you've enjoyed and kind of been part of it? Yeah, thank you, Johnny. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's a real privilege every time I go along. I'm, I'm very privileged. Um, I think it's really important uh, in some of our gatherings that we, that we bring faith. Um, I think sometimes we're shy of faith. We want to stay away from it um, because it's nebulous and it's caused problem. But I, I think we need faith. I think we all, <laughs> I would say we need to become more more christ-like maybe <laughs> you know mm -hmm. I, th I i mean i would when you get into some of these theological you know ways in which religion has been misused you look back um to christ who was crucified by religious people you know defending mm -hmm. their religious position mm -hmm. um but who was revolutionary who was a friend of sinners a friend in in a very conformist context you know where people could be stoned for mm -hmm. you know sort of breaking the mold he 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 would always reach out this morning you know we were reading that passage in our daily prayers of uh of the woman who touched the hem of his garment you know and mm. the shame as she as he turns around and says who touched me and she's like she doesn't want to be the one who sort of says i've been bleeding for eight years and mm. you know i am actually unclean and i'm right in the middle of all of you you know the shame of it you know she's hiding but she actually reaches out and touches him and he has time for her, and he has mm. compassion for her. Mm. And then Jairus is, you know, and Jairus is the big important man, and his daughter's just died, but he has compassion for Jairus as well. He has compassion for all of them. But there is a sense that he is, he is a, a um, something about compassion, something about embrace, a place at the table. I loved last night that we, um, there was uh, Azadeh, our friend, uh, Iranian Muslim lady, uh, gave, if you like, the main reflection about sacred space. Mm. And uh, she was profound in saying, you know, you need to, we need to, um, she said, you need to choose who you're going to accompany, what causes and what people you're going to accompany. Mm. And, and, and then, you know, as in accompaniment, mm. there's something sacred about that. And she's a, a strong advocate for all sorts of things. Mm. You know, she's a campaigner mm. and, and her husband James and her met on a, sort of a rally mm -hmm. for justice for mm -hmm. in, in Palestine. But, but, uh, but I love that, that we, that we mm -hmm. were preached at, preached mm -hmm. to by, by mm -hmm. a, an Iranian Muslim woman mm -hmm. last night. And I, I love, uh, you know, the sense that Christ comes to me in her, that Christ comes to me in you, he comes to me in one another. I like the opportunity to, um, to challenge ourselves to be more creative mm. and to listen for examples of faith and grace in our life mm. to poetically think you know lord uh what have you given me what what's remarkable here you mm. know where where are you mm. and then and then to, to to make more space at the table yeah to make 
greater space at the table and, and invite other people up to the table and then to listen. I mean, it's powerful to listen to one another. I think in Borderlands, we want to create a higher level of conversation, maybe a higher level of disagreement even, you know, where, you know, we also had Father Martin McGill. Uh, so we had a Catholic priest and a, and a, and a Muslim mm. um, activist talking to us last mm. night, you know, and, and it was a faith gathering and we were stirred and you could see I, I, I bought something mm. from it. So mm. it's a place of honor and place of inclusive, inclusivity and embrace. A, pray, a place where we can practice mm. the love of God, not just for our mates, but for mm. people who aren't yet our mates mm. and who may well become our mates, mm. you know, as we, as we gather together around, you know, storytelling mm. and music. And in one sense, story, music, the arts, these are less dogmatic, less, mm. less kind of mm. finger pointy than, mm. than dogma. So, mm. you know, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we see... Mm. Father Martin McGill said said last night, when hearts meet, you know, there is something sacred about mm. that. You know, the heart speaks to the heart. Mm. And uh, so that's where the arts can come in and, and creativity can come in and draw us together. And you've got a lovely phrase. We find we have more in common, you know, when we, I don't know what it is. You've got, you have a nice way of saying it, Johnny. But, you know. <laughs> but, oh, there's it's a story. The, story the stories thing. are what bring us together. You Identity know, is what make us different. Our stories are what make us the same. Yeah. So on that, um, <laughs> we sometimes would, would have stories um, there of, uh, as part of the evening in Borderlands. And, and Jill, you, a uh, very gifted writer and, um, and kind of communicating reflections and thoughts based on the narrative of your life. So I asked Jill if she would share one of them with us. So we've talked, I guess, about you both being people who have opened your homes, your, your table for common ground, for people to have common ground in diversity. Um, you have a story that you told when we did a Borderlands around the theme of belonging. Mm. Um, would you be able to read that out to us? Mitoko Yasi is a greeting from the Lakota tribe in North and South Dakota. It is saying, I am related to things above, things below, things all around. That I am related to those who have gone before me, to those who are here, and to those who are not yet. It is placing me within the wider picture of creation. Mitoko Yesi. When I was 12 years old, my parents sold our white wood-paneled home with its giant Douglas fir trees towering over the flat Oregonian prairie, loaded up a U-Haul lorry with all of our belongings and my grandmother's piano, and moved our family of five to an indigenous community in the far north of Manitoba, Canada. My dad had heard of a teaching post in a small village school, and although he wasn't a trained teacher, he had a sense of adventure and a desire for something new. So we all piled into our blue 1988 Chevy van and my mom drove three wild, wide-eyed kids through three states and two provinces while dad drove the bright orange U-Haul ahead. Five days later, we arrived in Pine Falls, Manitoba and our two towering Oregonian pines were replaced by forest upon forest of densely packed bush. The teacher's house, our new rust-red-colored home, sat on the bay of the Winnipeg River, and our life amongst the Sagaking First Nation people began. Looking back on it now, I appreciate the exposure to a new culture, a new people, a new expression of faith. But back then, looking through my 12-year-old eyes, I was just loving and living through every new experience with an awareness of the present moment, as only a child can. We shoveled snow off the frozen bay every break time and tried not to get the blades of our skates stuck in the cracks of the shifting ice while we played hockey and ring it. We sat in fishing huts on the river and caught pike through a meter thick hole in the ice and we ate beaver tail and wild rice and sat around fires listening to stories of bears and hunts and days before white men came to build a paper mill on their land. We wore mitts and toques and came home smelling of diesel and snow after traveling hours on skidoos over the frozen Winnipeg River. My eyes, young eyes, didn't take in then what my older soul now can see in hindsight, that these people carried a humility and a contentedness to everything around them, 
their life, their faith, their way of being was beautifully integrated, a part of the whole. Everyday practices were so easily infused with a sense of past, present, and future. The sacred was not reserved for certain days or occasions, but rather lived out in common activities. These people who had been dislocated, relocated, and confined to reservations held a deep sense of belonging because they placed themselves in the greater story. Their relation to all things carried with it a profound awareness that belonging was not dependent on land or location. Two years later, my family packed up that blue Chevy van and drove out of the bush through the Rocky Mountain Range and back to the Willamette Valley with its tall pine trees and rolling fields of grain. Decades later, I found my grown-up self packing our life here in Ireland into boxes and corralling my own four wild, wide-eyed children onto a plane headed for the south of India. We spent eight years absorbing and learning a new culture, a new language, and an entirely new way of living our daily life. We ate Tangama's fish curry with our fingers and drank Tiliga's sugary chai with, out of hot metal cups and consumed mounds more rice than we ever thought would fit into our bellies. We learned from mistakes more often than victories. We asked for a shovel at the chicken stall at the market because our tongues found it difficult to navigate the syllable that differentiated the two. We were often the accidental source of good-natured entertainment as we tried and failed at seemingly small tasks. David's dhoti, a sarong-type piece of material that needs to be tied a certain way, once fell to his ankles in the middle of the main street while him and some friends were trying to push our ever-stalling car off the road, a story that seemed to get more dramatic every time our friends told it. Not long, long after the Dodi incident, I nearly poisoned our language helper one day, serving him his chai mistakenly uh, <laughs> with lawn fertilizer for sugar because they both come in the same clear bulk bags. We often felt as if we should walk around with a help-needed post-it note stuck to our foreheads. In those years, we became less certain of ourselves and more aware of our need to be placed in the wider story. We found ourselves, in our own small way, going through a dislocation, a relocation, and often wondering where we belonged. My ever-aging soul is slowly awakening to the truth that belonging most often doesn't come with certainty or location, but rather when I bring my vulnerable, help-needed self to the greater story and place myself there in relation to all things, through all ages, just as I am, a part of the whole. And so, dear friends, mitoku yesi, may we all come to know we are related to all things. May we all find our place here together. And may we hold in our hearts the beauty of our belonging. Mm. Thank you, Jill. That's lovely. Mm. Um, I think we'll end it there. So um, that's a lovely story. And, and your lives, uh, you, you've lived a good life and you've got much mm. to give still is good this isn't the end <laughs> realizes i said that it's like and this is the end um uh but thanks guys for your friendship and uh your love and and i think you're an ex i think why i think this is a good story is not look this is the good christian people be like them um it's it's that we live in a city that is has not been at peace with itself and it's needed people who don't come along and say we have the answer but come along and say come and sit at the table and mm -hmm. let's be together and that's what you've continually done common grounds was a place of encounter for everyone the community meal is that i believe that what you're building here in this physical space will will be that mm -hmm. will continue to be a space where many people who wear different labels and carry different things on their backs will find home and find uh, peace here and um, so thanks for your ever willing and ever open heart mm -hmm. to whoever you meet. So thank you, John. Bless you, Johnny. Thank you. Okay, thank you. <laughs>